Hope you're well. Thanks for coming back. Didn't scare that many people off last week. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, we are just going to dive in in the interest of time. But a couple things to just throw out there to begin with. If you didn't get a notebook or need to take notes, would want to take notes, we do have some more notebooks available in the back of the room in either corner and some pens. So if you want to grab one of those, feel free. And I think that's it in terms of housekeeping. So we are looking at, if I can get it, there we go. There it goes. We're looking at, over the course of these five weeks, nine difficult questions. And on deck for tonight, session two, are two in particular, which are, why do bad things happen to good people? Which is a question that gets asked all the time. And what about those who have never heard the gospel? Again, another question that gets asked with high frequency amongst people who are wondering about all these things. So before we get into all of that, just a quick question about show of hands. How many of you had a chance to look at or work through the, the homework? I very, very much scare quote, call it that. Okay, cool. So let's do this. I would like to just give you a couple minutes. So if you did, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you did. Nice and high. Okay. Here's what I'd like. If you, I don't want everyone going across the room or anything, but just find someone who's around you if you didn't and sort of like glom on to them. But I'm going to give just a couple minutes for you all to sort of share some of the highlights, some things that stood out to you. What was it about? What was, what was covered? What was all that? What struck you? Those kinds of things. So I'm going to go, go ahead and take a couple minutes, find some people, just get in some smallish groups and take a minute to discuss.
All right. So the general gist is there's a lot of bad stuff out there, right? <laughs> if we're going to summarize it as succinctly as we can. And we're going to talk more about that tonight. It ties directly into where we're going first. So when last we left off, our, our big takeaway from last week is just this, this idea that because of what happened in the garden, Adam and Eve inherited death. And we looked at different options for how that might work. And I shared one that I'm particularly uh, convinced by that has to do with just when Adam and Eve sinned, they inherited death. Death is what spreads as a result of their rebellion. And because you and I now find ourselves, because of Adam's sin, born outside of the garden, we are going to die. We're outside of God's presence, which means give us time and we're going to rebel. And so as a result of that, we are also, all of us, going to inherit death without exception. Every one of us is going to die. And so the question that came up as a result of that were, you know, all these, you're saying we're all terrible, we all deserve to die, all these things. Is So what about all the good people out there, right? Because we can think of examples of people in our own lives, we're like, that's a good person, that's a, he's a good dude. He wouldn't do things like this. He's... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got a moral compass, so on and so forth. And so these are, these are the examples that we might think of. So once again, before we get started, I will just give the weekly standard disclaimer, but I will say this. This is the week of all weeks where this absolutely directly applies. We're going we're gonna to get into it pretty heavy here in the next few minutes. So just understand, as I've said before, this is for a purpose, and the purpose is to understand truly what the Bible says about who we are so that we can understand how good the good news actually is. So that's where we're going. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is quoting from a bunch of Old Testament passages, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, I think, something, some things from Isaiah and from Proverbs. But he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's pretty intense. If we look at us, we look around and be like, really? Is he talking about the same people? Because I look at us and I'm like, I don't see that. Right? We're not that bad. Really? If we look at Genesis chapter 6, we see that right before the flood, the, the people are described. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a statement. Right? Only evil continually? Really? Now, the temptation that we would have would be to look at a statement like that, especially because it's in Genesis, and say, yeah, I mean, sure, that's fine, but that was then. I mean, the Old Testament time, that was a brutal time. You read the Old Testament, you've got people murdering each other and running around in siege warfare and all kinds of terrible things. People were terrible back then, but that was then, right? This is now, we're more civilized we're more refined. We don't do those things to people anymore. Let's find out. Here we go. Old Testament is where we're going to draw from. 
Leviticus 18, none of you shall approach one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. I don't know how many of you picked up on this story a few years ago, but there was a North Carolina man who uh, married his biological daughter, got her pregnant. Because they lied on their marriage certificate is how it even happened, and then after it was found out, they were charged with incest, but it, it made news. And more recently, you, you, if you've heard of this, you may not have heard that after his daughter broke up with him, because as it turns out, a guy who would do this to his own daughter is abusive, go figure. He tracked her down, her adoptive father and the baby, and he killed them all before turning the gun on himself. Not a good dude. Now we might be tempted to look at this and say, that's a, yeah, that dude's, he's Cocoa Puffs, right? Like he's out there, he's crazy, but not everyone's like this. No one really is gonna do these kinds of things. Let me read this for you. After doing extensive meta-analysis, the National Society of Genetic Counselors concluded that overall, cousin marriage, and they're talking about first cousins here, increases the risk of children with genetic defects by 1.7%, roughly the same added risk as a 40-year-old woman having a child. So the thinking goes, if no law forbids a woman in her 40s to have children, why should cousins be permitted to in, forbidden to engage in a practice that carries the same risk? Allowing someone with Huntington's disease to get married, but not allowing cousins to do the same is far from moral consistency. So they take the moral high ground on this to say, oh, cousins should be allowed to marry. Why? Because it's, they only, we're only about outcomes here. This is not anything other than, well, what's, what is the, what's the bad that could result from this decision? There's no concept of whether something is right or wrong in and of itself. We just, they're just looking at the outcome and saying, well, those are pretty good numbers, so why not, right? Let's keep rolling. Leviticus 18, also, you shall not uncover a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. Now, big disclaimer on this one, because you have to understand ancient Near Eastern context for this. There is no point in the Bible, nor today, where anyone would look at anything, ladies, being on your period is not a sin. <laughs> what, is being, what is being described here is, this is in the context, first of all, what book is it in? It's in Leviticus. This is in the context of the temple worship and understanding how Israel is to relate to God in terms of a people on his sacred space, his temple, and what that looks like. And like we said last week in the Garden of Eden, when you understand what, what's going on with the trees and what's being communicated theologically, God alone is the source of life, of wholeness, all these things. In the Israelite mind, and you'll see this not just applied to women in this passage, but you'll see this applied to men, you'll see this applied to uh, people who would touch a dead body, for instance, is there's this concept that in God's presence should only be life and wholeness and completeness. And this is why even people who had been maimed or had some disabilities were not allowed to go only so far into the temple complex. It has nothing to do with a moral issue. It has everything to do with this idea of trying to teach the people of God that in God's presence is life and wholeness. And if you have lost something, in this case, uh, through a menstrual cycle, if you have lost something that is associated with life and with wholeness, 
you are not immediately fit to be in the presence of God because God's presence is for wholeness and for completeness. Not a moral issue. But I raise this to say, in the Israelite time, there was this concept of respecting this idea of God's presence of life, of wholeness, of completeness, so on and so forth. This is how we treat it today. We cook with it. We paint with it to show our liberatedness. We eat the afterbirth. We do all these things, and we, even if you read the article, we laugh about how taboo it is, right? There is no respect for propriety, for wholeness, for any kind of line anywhere. It's all about can we cross the line, and how fast can we do it? Also in Leviticus, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. We're going to get into this in more detail in another week. Suffice it to say, this has to do with a very horrific uh, practice of child sacrifice in the Canaanite religions. But let's look at it from our perspective. They did this stuff, but we're enlightened. We don't do this stuff. Well, infanticide is not a great wrong. I do not want to be construed as condemning women who under certain circumstances quietly put their infants to death. That is Beverly Harrison, professor of Christian ethics at a seminary. What we are saying is that the abortion becomes one of those choices and the person has the right to choose whatever it is that is best for them in the situation in which they find themselves. Be it abortion, keep the baby, adopt the baby, sell the baby, leave the baby in a dumpster, put it on your porch, whatever. It's the person's right to choose. I want to be clear. We're not talking at this point about an unborn child. We're talking about an infant. Right? If you want to leave that infant in a dumpster, you go right ahead. That should be your choice. Esther Langston is the director of the social work program at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. One more. The most merciful thing a large family can do for one of its infant members is to kill it. We would be remiss to talk about this topic without bringing in the infamous Margaret Sanger. That was her opinion on this particular issue. We're so civilized and we're so refined. We don't do these things anymore. Oh, here we go. Leviticus 18. 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Now, honestly, truly, I feel like in our culture at this stage of the game, it would be a little bit underwhelming to just talk about homosexuality because the truth is we're a little past it, don't you think? I mean, how long ago has that been part of the discussion? We've moved way on. And in case your brain is trying to figure out what's going on on the screen right now, all three of those individuals are men, just in case you wondered. Also in Leviticus 18, 23, you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Certainly we don't do this. Well, actually, you can go to IMDb and you can find a movie called Zoo, and the editor of the IMDb page for this is very politically correct. He, he, he or she, whoever the editor was, wrote, this is a look at the life of an Enumclaw Washington man who died as a result of an unusual encounter with a horse. That's a very sterile way of putting it. A user on IMD, IMDb 
wrote their own review, and they put it this way. It's not a look in the life of a man who died. It is a story about the men who met on a regular basis to have intimate relations with horses. The man in question died because he ruptured his colon while he was having sex with a horse. We don't do these things. We're much more civilized. Last category for now, Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We have a lot to talk about here. And since it's the elephant in the room, we're just going to start with the obvious. And we're going to take a look at Germany, World War II. Twelve million people were killed as a result of the Holocaust leading up to and during the time of World War II. If you have studied any history on this, you will recognize this picture. These are the gates outside probably the most famous death camp, Auschwitz. During the course of the Holocaust, approximately six million Jews, six million of Slavic descent, as well as all kinds of singled out people groups, gypsies, homosexuals, people who were disabled, political dissidents, so on and so forth, they were rounded up and they were killed. And it's not just that they were killed, it's how that they were killed and how this all happened. So in addition to just the, the numbers on this, they were packed into cars, cattle cars. Cattle actually would have had more room and been treated better. And they were transported for days without food, without water, without restrooms, without any sort of break whatsoever. And to give one example, there was a four-day transport in July 44 from France to Dachau, one of the other well-known prison camps, 2,500 people on these trains. Almost 1,000 of them were dead after the four-day journey. They didn't even make it to the death camp. Now, keep in mind, people are dying during this trip. They're not dumping the bodies off board. They're not stopping. There is no place for the human waste, the vomit, the dead bodies. And so you just live in it until you get to where you're going, if you can live that long. Once you get there, and sometimes in the villages as people were being rounded up, people were executed in ditches, sometimes ditches that they were forced at gunpoint to dig themselves, knowing that they were digging their own graves. And people would be told to lie face down, and yes, there are children in this picture, they would, be lie, they would lie face down in a ditch, and they would be shot. And then, the next wave of people would be told to go lay on top of those people so that they too could be shot. This is what they were doing. If you made it to the death camp, we've all heard about the ovens, the crematoriums. One of these could handle almost 5,000 bodies a day. That's a lot. And that kind of death happening all across Germany during this time resulted in a lot of uh, unclaimed property, shall we say. This is one image of just rings that were left over from people, probably mostly wedding rings, I would imagine, earrings, jewelry. In fact, there were whole piles of shoes, clothes, jewelry, glasses, but they didn't waste anything. They used skin for lampshades and book covers. We, uh, they used human hair to stuff mattresses. 
pillows. And then there was Joseph Mengele, and he's famous for his, and I say this very loosely, medical experiments. There was nothing medical about them. Because he would do things like he would put people in freezers, and, just, and he would put them in decompression tanks, and give them the bends, and then take them out just, just to see what would happen. He would put people on tables, he would put pregnant women on tables, and he would mutilate them and leave them to die so he could remove the, the child and then mutilate that and leave it to die. Children were giving chemical injections into their eyes to try and change their eye color. No anesthesia, nothing. People were just horrifically butchered by this man and his team. This is what one of the camps looks like. And I want you to notice that there is a very densely, uh, a, a densely planted row of trees around the whole thing, as if that's going to keep out the sounds of the screaming, the gunshots, as if that's going to keep out the smell, and all of it. The fact is, it's not just the handful of camps you've heard about. Scholars have identified over 10,000 of these places in Germany. And many of them had satellite camps associated with them that would be feeders to bring people into these places where these things would happen to them. And you start to do the math on that and you realize if you're talking about that many locations, you're looking at thousands of people who are just, just the guards, just to make sure that everyone stays there and doesn't escape. It also means that there were dozens of corporations who were directly involved and complicit in this. Corporations that we still know today, Bayer, Krupp, Volkswagen, BMW, so on and so forth. And many of them, if they didn't directly participate, like one of the companies that actually made the Zyklon B that was used in the gas chambers, many of them profited by taking advantage of the cheap labor that these camps provided. And it was very cheap labor. What that means is that when you do the math and you look at it, you're talking about millions of collaborators. They could not have not known what was going on. Not possible. Now, the question is, we look at an example like that, one example. It's the biggest example we all think of. And the question is, were these all, all these millions of people, were they all moral monsters? Were they all inhuman? We'd be tempted to say that, right? Because it's super uncomfortable to look at that people could do that to other people. And we're, we use terms like they're a monster or they're, it's inhumane to treat people that way. Is it though? This is one example. The truth is that the, the deaths in the Soviet Union during and immediately after World War II actually far outweigh all the deaths of the Holocaust. Gulags, prison camps, work details, Communist Party killings, things, so on and so forth. One of the Communist Party officials named uh, Viktor Kravchenko, he wrote this. A wagon goes around now and then to pick up the corpses. We've eaten everything we could lay our hands on, cats, dogs, field mice, birds. And when it's light tomorrow, you will see that the trees have been stripped of their bark. That too has been eaten. And the horse manure has been eaten. Yep, the horse manure. We fight over it. Sometimes there are whole grains in it. 
really bad conditions. This is one that doesn't get talked about a lot because it's overshadowed. It happened during World War II. How many of you have ever heard of the book The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang? Okay, just a couple. This is why we, we don't hear about this. Iris Chang was a Chinese-American who started to do research on this because her family actually left this area of China, I think, within a couple years of this happening. And I mean, if they, her, if her family had stayed, she would have never been born. So she started to look into it. And she started to uncover, basically a cover-up to, to sort of smooth over the atrocities that had happened. We're talking about 300,000 Chinese being killed by Japanese soldiers during the time of World War II. Iris Chang writes this. The rape of Nanking should be remembered not only for the number of people slaughtered, but for the cruel manner in which many met their deaths. Chinese men were used for bayonet practice and in decapitation contests. They made games out of killing people. An estimated 20,000 to 80,000 Chinese women were raped, and many soldiers went beyond rape to disembowel women, slice off their breasts, nail them alive to walls. Fathers were forced to rape their daughters, sons their mothers, as other family members watched. They did live burials, castration, carving of organs, roasting of people. But more diabolical tortures were practiced, like hanging people from their tongues on iron hooks or burying people to their waists and watching German shepherds tear them apart. She actually goes on to say that the Nazis were shocked. You know what you have to do to shock a Nazi? We're going to move faster now. China has also participated in its fair share of atrocities. Millions and millions and millions of people killed under Communist Party policies. I don't believe that this number includes the one-child policy, all the forced abortions because we wanted a boy in China, and the millions and millions and millions of babies that have been lost there because of that. If we look at South Africa, over 30,000 people as a part of the apartheid practices were killed. Most of us have heard of the atrocity in Rwanda. In just 100 days, over 800,000 people were killed. You can barely see it on the map. It's this little orange dot in the middle of Africa. The thing that's most surprising about this is that most, the vast majority of those who died in Rwanda were killed with machetes. So we're talking about up close and personal neighbors, things like that. 1.2 million in Turkey. This is one of the oldest that we'll talk about tonight. This actually happened just at the beginning, leading up to World War I, is the Armenian Genocide that also does not get talked about very much in the West. This is actually the event where the term crimes against humanity was coined. It's where we get it from. It's first applied to this. Tens of thousands of people just disappear in Argentina. Ethnic cleansing in Cambodia, a couple million people. Starvation because of warlords and warring clans in Sudan. A couple hundred thousand to a couple million, depending on which side you talk to, because of war and ethnic cleansing and genocide in, in Pakistan. During World War II, there were a few hundred thousand Jews in Romania who lost their lives, also outside of Germany, 
few hundred thousand in Liberia. This one may surprise you, 1.4 million in Mexico. What could that possibly be? We're not talking about the conquistadors or anything nearly so old. We're talking about native populations being exterminated within the last 100 years. And last, but certainly not least for now, right here. When did 60 million people die in, in our country? That is the conservative estimate for how many babies have been aborted since 1973 when Roe v. Wade went into effect, not that long ago. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. Just using that number, let's just focus on just the states and, and this 60 million number. Do you realize that we have a current population of somewhere between like 320, 330 million? I want you to do this math, because these numbers, we don't have context for them. I want you to think about it this way. Just this number means that in our country, for every five people you know, you should know a sixth. They're just not there. Think about that. So the question is, looking at all this, are they all monsters? Is this inhumane? Or is this what people do? Are we going to say they're all the exception? It sure is hard to. By the way, I have excluded anything that has to do with terrorism. We haven't even talked about that. We haven't talked about the culture that fetishizes violence, where in video games you can do pretty much any of the things I just described to you, to people, in video games. The music lyrics that glorify violence and murder, and frankly, the movies that many of us watch on a regular basis in which the good guy goes around and just murders people in cold blood because he's a good guy, it's okay, we root for him, we think it's awesome. We have become so desensitized to violence because it is all around us. It also excludes psychology experiments. How many of you have ever heard of the Stanley Milgram shock experiment? Okay, a couple of you. So for, for the sake of the rest of you, this was an experiment conducted by Stanley Milgram and he did an experiment to see how people are willing to follow authority figures. And what he, he, he set up this experiment where one person would be the recipient of a shock. They were an actor, but no, the, the person on the other end didn't know that. And these people would come in and basically they would be, over the course of time, by, because this person was in a, a lab coat, would tell them to administer increasingly lethal amounts of shocks. And the actor is reacting to this as if it's real. So they're hearing the screams, they're hearing the discomfort, and so on and so forth, and they would work up to a, a lethal shock after which they administer. There is no sound on the other side. The actor just wouldn't make any noise. A staggering number of people did it because someone told them to. They didn't stop, they didn't engage their brain and say, well, hold on a second, this is wrong. I don't care what it's for, this is not okay to do to someone. They didn't, they just, they just did it because someone told them. The Stanford prison experiment in the basement of the psychology building, a random group of students was randomly divided into guards and prisoners. And within a couple days, the experimenters had lost all control of the experiment. Beatings, hazings, 
terrible treatment, deprivation of food, all kinds of terrible things. Two days earlier, these had been like students in the same class, complete equals. And in a couple days, because of this experiment, they were treating each other horribly. It does not take much to get people to this point, is the point. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who survived a Soviet gulag and, and became a Christian, he, he said, where did this wolf tribe appear from among our people? Does it really stem from our own roots, our own blood? It is our own. And just so we don't go around flaunting too proudly the white mantle of the just, let everyone ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I myself not have become just such an executioner? It is a dreadful question if one answers it honestly. And that is the question we need to ask ourselves. If my life had turned out differently, if my birth had been at another time in another place, am I not, could I not have been one of these people? We're going to talk more about that in just a sec. See if this works. There we go. A sociologist Harold Welzer wrote, we are left then with the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb as we look at the perpetrators of genocide and mass killing. We need no longer ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. I want to, I, I bring this up to say, this, this question of if my life had turned out differently, could I not have been one of these people? It's awfully tempting, and I'm sure that many of you right now are struggling in yourself thinking, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to people. I'm not capable of it. I, w I would say no. I wouldn't go there. And the question I would need to ask you, and I need you to think about honestly, just within your own soul, is on what basis? On what basis? Because if you're thinking that you wouldn't do that because those are bad people, I'm different. I want you to consider that that thought, the thought that there is something inherently better or different about me than all these other people out there is the basis for every one of the genocides that we just looked at. Do you get that? Every one of them started because one group looked at another group and thought, there is something about me that is inherently better or different than you. Are you really not capable? So when we read in the Bible that no one is righteous, no one seeks for God, no one understands, everyone has turned aside that we are swift to shed blood. Do you believe it? Or at least are you starting to? This is something, like I said last week, we're going to stop paying lip service to things that we read in the Bible. The Bible says no one is good. Do you believe the Bible when it says that? We could take the Bible at its word, or we could look at the evidence, and it's going to lead us right back here. Now, there is a question that comes up a lot, so we'll take the time to, to look at that, and, and you may be thinking it yourself, is, hold on a second, 
not everyone does these things, right? As many people who have done these things throughout human history, and by the way, all those examples, that was the last 100 years of human history, beginning of the 20th century. We, that's all the further back we, we went. But you look at that and you go, despite that, despite all the atrocities, all the genocide, all the terrible things, most people are not as bad as they could be, right? And that is true. But I will challenge you to think of it this way. It is tempting to conflate human niceness with human goodness. And my friends, that is a mistake. That is not true. I'll give you two examples. And these are examples that one of my professors gave. So not original to me, but I think they, they're too good not to, not to share. Do you not think that the SS guards at Dachau did not go home after a shift of executing people face down in ditches and shoveling their bodies into an oven and hug their children and read them bedtime stories, have dinner with the family? Hey, dear, how was your day? Do we not think that happened? Do you not think that the white supremacist grandma doesn't bake cookies for all the little white kids on her block? do nice things for them? Of course they do. Of course they do, right? That is not, that doesn't make them good. It doesn't make them good. There's a veneer of niceness that we all experience. It is not human goodness, and it's a mistake to think so. I'll illustrate it with this question, and I'll, I'll throw this out to you if, if you care to take a stab. This is not a riddle, even though it reads like a, why did the chicken cross the road? Here's the question. Why do gangbangers stop at red lights? Anyone want to venture a guess? Nailed it, right? People, it's not that people who have no regard for laws about murder, about rape, about breaking and entering, about drugs, suddenly have just such a high regard for traffic laws. The reason that they stop at red lights is self-preservation. They are concerned, like most people, about consequences. Consequences. So why are people not as bad as they could be? Consequences. Again, it's not because we're good. It's because we don't want to deal with the fallout of a stupid decision, so we don't do it. And just so that we're going to tie this back into Scripture, by the way, Jesus thought this too. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says... I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We'll look at one more. You've heard it said that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What is Jesus saying? Simply this. If you've already done it here, what stops you from doing it here? It is not goodness. It's consequences, right? Jesus is saying, you're not a good person just because you're like, well, I don't actually murder someone even though I kill them in my mind over and over and over again. The fact that you don't actually go through with the affair even though you fantasized about it over and over and over again does not make you a good person. It makes you pragmatic. Because you, 
You don't want to lose your kids. You don't want to give up half your stuff. You don't want to deal with a messy divorce. You don't, so on and so forth, right? It just makes you a pragmatist. Here's the question, again, that we all have to look at and answer honestly, because this is what Jesus is saying. If, if consequences are the reason people aren't as bad as they could be, wipe them away. There are no consequences. Ma magically, there are no consequences. Whatever you do will be fine. Anyone who in you involve will, like, magically, the, the, the men in black will come along and they will wipe their mind away. Like, no one will remember it. Nothing will have any kind of consequences or fallout associated to it. So the question becomes this. What would you do if you knew you could get away with it? No consequences at all. Once again, if we answer that question honestly, I'm here to tell you I am not a good person. I suspect neither are you. I hope that this helps you to, to see people differently, because the fact is it should. I, I remember hearing about this and thinking about this when I was studying this particular topic. I was on a short uh, residency for my, my program, and the drive home freaked me out, because as I pulled up next to people at stoplights and so on and so forth, I was just, I was completely unnerved, <laughs> thinking like, what would these people do if they thought that they could get away with it? It's scary. One more thing that has to do with this, though, and that is uh, another thing. Jesus also talked about the problem of evil in, in his own way. In, in Luke chapter 13, we get two examples of this. People come up to Jesus and they say, so, you know, this, this terrible thing happened to these, these people over here. Pilate killed them and he mixed the, these Galileans' blood with their sacrifices. Isn't that so awful? And, and Jesus looks at them and he says, do you think that they were worse somehow? than these other people, like, because they suffered, because they died this particular way. Skipping ahead to another example, he says, well, there was a tower, uh, the Tower of Siloam, that fell and killed a bunch of people. Do you think that those people who were killed in that, that accident were somehow worse? Were they worse sinners? Is that what you think? It's interesting that Jesus never tries to defend it or give them God's perspective. Of, well, here's what God was doing, and here's how it was all working. Jesus has an, the same answer for both scenarios. He simply says, um, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus' message to them is, oh, yeah, that terrible thing happened. They weren't worse, but you should repent or you're going to die too. That seems really odd, right? It's like non sequitur. What is Jesus thinking here? Here's what he's thinking. He's looking at these people and saying, you are asking completely the wrong question. You're so sideways on this, you can't even see it. Jesus is looking at them, arguing about, you know, well, these people died in a horrible, horrible way. They must have been worse, right? They must have done something worse, whatever. To give you a modern analogy, it would be like two people arguing about how, who has the more comfortable seat on the Titanic as it's going down, right? This is why Jesus is like, well, just repent or you're going to die too, right? Get off the ship. The problem is not how you die. That's irrelevant. The problem is that you die like we talked about last week. Jesus is like, that's the problem. You need to take care of that, right? Does it really matter how you die, as if somehow one is so much worse than the other or makes you a worse person? Because the truth is, if we are all capable of this, if this is really who we are, any way that you or I die is not more than we deserve. It's not more than we deserve. 
we're just we're, we're squabbling over details at that point. If we have high-handedly rebelled against God, and we have, we deserve death. That's what we learn in Genesis, right? Are we really going to argue about the details of, well, but it, it should be in this way? Does it matter? You're going to die. That's the problem. So, we're going to come back to our original question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I think now you're starting to understand that this is not a good question. Because the truth is, there are no good people. Who are we talking about? Not you, not me. There are no good people. Also, the truth is that no one ever has asked the question, why bad things happen to bad people? Do we care? Do we care why bad things happen to bad people? I don't think we do. Why? They get whatever they deserve, right? Guess what? We're those people. The real question that should puzzle us is why anything good at all happens to bad people. Because that's what we are. And many, many good things, because of the grace of God, have happened to some very bad people. Time for our break. When we come back, we're going to move on to the next question. So let's take whatever you have on your watch or your phone, and let's add seven minutes to it. And when we come back, we will talk about the fate of the unevangelized. All right. Thanks for coming back in and grabbing a seat. In all, I'll be completely transparent. I didn't, I didn't exactly set a timer, so I, I'm sorry if I cut you off by, by 60 seconds or so. My apologies. I'll get a stopwatch for next week. So we're going to continue on, and we're going to look at our next question of... What about those who never hear the gospel? Because if we look at what we've just talked about, there are a lot of people on both sides of this evil who die, who may not have ever heard the message of the gospel. So what about them? And again, we're going to start in Scripture wherever at all possible. And I want to just be clear before we start. Scripture is very explicit. Hebrews, that it, without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, one more in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Bible is explicit that when we are talking about the gospel, we are talking about conscious belief in Jesus Christ as Lord, period, as the only way to the Father. So just want to get that out of the way and lay that foundation. That is what we're talking about. So the question is, are there people who haven't heard that? Very possibly. So what about them, right? 
But we also need to ask another question, and this is, when we talk about those who've never heard, as these gentlemen walk right by a church, looking at it, is it really true that they have never heard? Or is it possible that they have just never listened? We're going to look at some examples. Because again, according to Scripture, starting there first, we'll go right back to Romans chapter 3. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. If you left it up to us, we would not want this. John chapter 3, people love darkness rather than light. And they hate the light. And they do not come into the light so that their works are not exposed. Right? We have this resistance to this truth. And so let's talk about the unevangelized. Just out of curiosity, before we dive into this, when we talk about or when you've heard about or when you've read about or heard someone say, those who've never heard of the unevangelized, who are we talking about? I mean, just in terms of people groups, where, where are we, you or someone you've talked to, where are we thinking about? So deepest, darkest Africa, remote island tribes, any other places? Not the United States. <laughs> not, not here, for sure. So Islamic countries, like closed borders, those kind of things, yeah. Say that again. The, yes, yeah. See the podcast, the video podcast from last week, which actually I, now's a good time as any to say. So I had some technical difficulties on my end getting the video uh, for the slides to sync. It's done. Jeff has it, so hopefully you'll see it soon, trademark. I won't, I won't promise a date. I don't want to put Jeff <laughs> on the spot. But point is, that should be coming out relatively, relatively shortly. So uh, you'll have a chance to check that out. But I was told that the audio is already out. So you can go to the website and you can find it there. So let's talk about the unevangelized, and we'll just look at, these, uh, at some different groups that have been brought up. Let's talk about China. Communist, closed country, all these things, right? As it turns out, we have Christian tombstones in China as early as 86 AD. And we know that because we can date the inscription to the person who was in rule at the time. And we know that the scholars would look at this and say, this is a Christian tombstone because there is specifically Christian iconography on this tomb, specifically the, the fish and actually the phoenix, which was used by some Christians uh, to represent resurrection, right? And, and being born again to new life. So very short, like first, toward the tail end of the first century, this is almost as long as Jerusalem had the gospel. There was Christianity through China during that time and leading up into the Middle Ages. In the 1300s, we know that lots and lots of Christians were in China because they were killed during Muslim expansion into the area. Hundreds of thousands of them, actually. We also know that Christianity was in China continually even past this point because in 1724 it was officially banned and if you were a missionary worker you did missionary work it was illegal and it carried the death penalty you'd be killed for being a christian missionary in japan or in in china and then one more example you've heard of the boxer rebellion yeah not many people really understand though what was going on on the other side it was a political thing not not really it was an extermination of Christians. 
That's what it was. Boxers were sweeping through the city, massacring the native Christians and burning them alive in their homes. This is a London Times reporter. He doesn't have a dog in this fight. He's just reporting on what he's, he's there. He's witnessing it. We'll look at some excerpts from this. Mobs followed them from one village boundary to the next, speaking of Christians, hurling sticks and stones, shouting death to the foreign devils. They carried these signs around as they hunted down missionaries and killed them. On July 12th, Hattie Rice, missionary, collapsed in the heat. A mob began stoning her, and a man ran a cart over her naked body to break her spine. Her companion, Mary Houston, shielded her body until shame-faced men came with clothing. And the report says that it was actually uh, Miss Houston who suffered the worst. Uh, as she was protecting her friend, part of her brain was exposed from the beatings that she received. And uh, both of them died later. This is a letter written by a wife of a missionary couple, Lizzie Atwater. She, along with some other missionary couples, uh, were involved in, in this particular part of the rebellion. She writes, I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life, uh, but God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible and bravely. My little baby will go with me. In my married life, two precious years have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. Lizzie Outwater and her family were part of a group, a small group of missionaries who uh, fled from what they thought would be where the rebellion would be the worst. And it actually, it turns out, they were, uh, they were tricked. They were led into a trap. As soon as they got to the city, the gates were closed and they were surrounded. And this letter was written by Lizzie uh, to her parents. Uh, Twelve days after she wrote this letter, uh, they were all hacked to death in the city. Now, as bad as this seems, the, the numbers that you look at for the Boxer Rebellion would say that for every one missionary that was killed, you're looking at about 200 native Chinese Christians in this rebellion. China has had the gospel for a very, very long time. And they've killed it, for the most part, wherever they found it. Let's talk about the unevangelized in Japan. Some other examples. February of uh, 1597, there were, this is the, the, the 26, it's a relatively famous martyr story, but 26 bloodied men and boys were crucified on a mountain overlooking Nagasaki Bay for the crime of being Christian. For 28 days, they had been marched through towns and villages and countryside, being spat upon and ridiculed and otherwise abused along the way. And it goes on to say that uh, upon their crosses, the 26 awaited the coup de grace that would end their Japanese-style crucifixions uh, twin spear thrusts from below on either side into their left and right sides, upwards through their hearts and out their shoulders. Looks like an X going, going through them. And there's uh, illustrations that have been drawn from this time period. Now, the, the Tycho, the, the general in charge of this particular incident, actually wrote uh, about this. I do not want this religion a religion of love and union, which is therefore harmful for this kingdom. Not really sure why he would see that as harmful. Maybe he thought it would make the Japanese uh, weak somehow. But I just want you to understand that he, he, he pretty much understood that, that this is for all nations. This is about union. This is about reclaiming the nations back to the people of God. He understood exactly what he was rejecting, and he rejected it. He said, I don't want this. Get it out. Let's talk about the unevangelized in India. I'll just briefly hear the church tradition and some of the writings that we have from relatively early in church history would say that, according to that, that Thomas, one of the disciples, pretty much after the events of Matthew 28, left and went 
very far east to India. Church tradition puts the gospel in India as early as 52 AD. Again, almost as early as Jerusalem had the gospel. It's been there a long time. Let's talk about Muslims, the unevangelized and Muslims. Now, this is an interesting one because I actually want to focus primarily on the Quran and what the Quran says about this. So in Surah 4, we read, O people of the book, speaking of, of Christians specifically, commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of Allah aught but truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger of Allah, and his word which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him, so believe in Allah and his messengers. Say not trinity, desist. Literally, it says, say not three. And the understanding is that he's talking about the trinity here. It will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Glory be to him, for exalted is he above having a son. Again, this is in the Quran, Surah 9. The Jews call Uzair the son of Allah, and the Christians call Christ the son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouths. In this they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. Allah's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. One more. Such was Jesus, the son of Mary. It is a statement of truth about which they, Christians, vainly dispute. It is not befitting to the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. Now, I bring these up simply to say, for all the theological misunderstandings and inaccuracies that Muhammad had about what Christians believe, about the nature of the Trinity, about some of these things, it should be very clear in reading the Quran that they understood some of these central core doctrines of what Christians did believe and then they rejected them, right? They understood that Christians believed that Jesus was equal with the Father, that he was part of a trinity, that he was the Son of God, and that he was the Christ, and they rejected all of those. In fact, we see this in a uh, Muslim sheikh from several years ago. He got in some hot water because he, he refused to say Merry Christmas to Christians, and here's what he said in response. I'd rather be resurrected on the day of judgment with the fact that I made a few hundred million unhappy with me because I refused to say Merry Christmas rather than being brought forward before Allah and having to explain to him why I congratulated a Christian who worships Jesus as Lord. He understands what Christians believe. There is no, there's no misunderstanding here. He understands what the doctrine is and he rejects it. So let's talk about Pacific Islanders, people who are in the middle of the ocean, things like that. And this is a quote from a man who does photography with these people groups. This is his job. He goes into these indigenous locations and he gets his head around what's going on there. He says there are less than 100 uncontacted small tribes around the world. That should be mind-boggling. There's less than 100. But here's what he goes on to say. And they need to be protected by international law. And the question we should ask is protected from what, right? Here's what he says. What in the world is going on? Let's go back. There we go. Uh, Jeff, you want to run it back to that slide or Chad? I should have seen what slide we were on. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. So he says, hundreds of Korowai, this is in Papua New Guinea, have moved already to the from the jungles to newly constructed missionary settlements. 
and the missionary's ultimate aim is to convert them to Christianity. He thinks they need to be protected from this, right? So it's not that they're not getting the gospel, that the gospel's not going out to them. People are actively working to prevent them from getting the gospel. They do not think that they should, should receive it. Now, in light of all of this, here's an important scriptural point to, to, to get across. God knows who will repent and who won't. And as you got the 10 times fast forward preview of just a minute ago, here's a perfect example. In Genesis 18, God says to Abraham, if I can find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole city. And Abraham says, that's amazing. Thank you, God. How do we feel about 45? Right? And God says, okay, I'll do it for 45. And Abraham presses his luck and says, how about 40? Uh, maybe 30? And he says, God, please don't get mad at me and kill me, but uh, can we do 20? And at every point, God is agreeing and finally doesn't want to press his luck any further. He says, God, if you can find 10 people righteous in this city, will you spare it? And God says, I will. Now, I just want you to think about the fact that Lot his wife, if we're going to include his wife and be real generous, his two daughters, and then two angels who were in the city get out. Well, there's six right there, if we're being real generous, right? And God says, if I can find 10, I'll spare the whole city. The city doesn't get spared. God knows who will repent. We see another example in Jeremiah as the prophet is lamenting the wickedness in, in, in Israel. And he says about Jerusalem, search her squares and see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. God's looking for one. That ought to tell you there's no one to be found at that point in Jerusalem. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 1. He talks about that we, as people, we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. What can be known about God is plain, because God's revealed it, and he's revealed it primarily through his creation and through the conscience that we all have. So that if we are, listen, if you are sufficiently reflective about the world, you're going to very quickly come to two conclusions. There is a creator, and you're not it, right? And if you are able to just do that exercise, that should alert you to the fact that there's probably more you need to try and figure out. So the question is, do you pursue it? Or do you have that thought and just go, nah, what's on Netflix? Right? Paul says they're without excuse. We have enough light to get us there, but we have to reject it. And Jesus wanted, he wanted this. He uh, says in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. You weren't willing. I wanted this for you. But you didn't want it back. So the question is, what if someone was willing? Right? Well, we see that in Scripture too. Jonah is a great example. Jonah wants Nineveh to burn. These were not good people. Again, there are no good people. The Ninevites were really not good people. And yet, God says, they've repented. Shouldn't I pity them, right? Don't they deserve to be shown uh, 
to be shown grace if, if they repent, right? This is what I want you to do. I want you to turn to me. If they're going to do that, then I will, I'll relent. And in Acts uh, chapter 8, we see Philip told by the Spirit to go to this one person, this, this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah, who doesn't understand, who says, how can I understand? I need someone to help me. And God says, go there, Philip. Take care of him so that he can understand. Because I know that if he, just, if he had someone to explain to him, he would understand and he would believe. He would repent. And so God makes sure that that happens for one person. And then Philip is teleported to, to somewhere else because God has something else for him now. Now, in Acts chapter 17, Paul says something fascinating, if we really look closely at what he's saying here. And he's preaching to the Athenians about their unknown God. I perceive you guys are real religious. You've got all these idols. I mean, you even have one to a God you don't know about, just in case you missed one, right? Like, you're really trying to cover your bases. Paul's like, let me tell you about him. And he goes on to do it, but he makes this statement in verses 26 and 27 where he says that he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you get what he's saying there? Paul seems to be making the statement that God in his sovereignty has determined when and where every one of us will be born and will live for the express purpose that we would all of us be put in a position where if we wanted to seek God, we could. That's amazing. That's amazing. But we should also then ask the question, so if more people don't seek God, what does that tell us? Is it really about them just needing to hear if they just heard, right? The point of all this is to simply say this, we can, I think, very safely draw this conclusion that God will ensure that those who would repent, if they heard, will hear. We see this in Scripture, clearly. If God knows that someone will repent, he will ensure that they hear so that they can do so. So then the question, we're back to our original question. So what about those who never hear the gospel? And by now, maybe you've already jumped ahead and you understand where this is going. I think we can say, from God's perspective, that apparently it wouldn't make a difference. God would be able to look everyone in the eye on the last day and to say, I didn't hear God. And God could say, I know. And I also know that it wouldn't have made a difference if you did. Because I know what light you had. I know how you didn't respond to it. I know how you didn't seek for me. I know how you turned away and you rejected the truth when you did have it. What possible difference could, would that have made? I know it wouldn't have made a difference. So God's not on the hook for making sure everyone, you know, gets a chick track just so that they can reject it if he already knows that it's not gonna, it's not gonna make a difference, right? All well and good. But then we, we come at, to another uncomfortable question. Okay, so it wouldn't matter if they did, apparently. But hell? Really? Especially forever? That seems excessive, God. Are you sure about that? And because I love cliffhangers... That is what we're going to start with next week. <laughs> we're
we're going to take a look at two questions. How is eternal punishment fair? How could that possibly be fair? Again, all that we looked at tonight, and as much sin as it is, it is still a finite amount of sin. How could an infinite amount of punishment possibly fit the crime? And we're also going to look at why does God let a child die? It's a very hard question, and we're going to take a look. Because again, I think there are answers. So like last week, if you have a relatively new modern phone, you should be able to pull up your camera, capture this QR code, and it should redirect you right to the homework. Again, we're looking at somewhere around five to 10 minutes worth of reading and interaction to sort of lay the groundwork for where we're gonna go next week. So if you're able to do that, I would encourage you to. If not, we'll do our best to get you the Cliff Notes version right up front before we dive in, but I, I think that it would, it would be helpful. So I would encourage you to, to do that and take advantage of it. So while you're doing that, I will just simply say thank you this, for, for coming again. And I am still very encouraged by the number of people that are here. Thank you for sticking through what I, true, I think is probably the hardest week. And I hope you'll come back next week and join us as we continue. Thanks, everyone.